0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Joining us today is Max Brooks, a prolific author of such New York Times bestsellers as World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war. His first work was The Zombie Survival Guide and his Minecraft series has proven very popular. His first one, Minecraft the Mountain, and his second and latest, Minecraft the Island. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live and is a frequent guest on real time with Bill Maher. And yes, his dad, Mel Brooks, is one of the funniest and most talented uh, people in history. But what makes Max so interesting for us is that he is a thinker, military historian, and strategist. Each of his books, in one way or another, are about strategy, uh, which is why he is affiliated with the Institute for Modern War at the United States Military Academy, where he lectures. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Skullcroft Center for Strategy and Security's Art of the Future Project. Max Uh, It's an honor and pleasure talking to you again. Thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Good to be here, Father. Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: And this uh, conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall G.M. Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control Uh, Max uh, pleasure uh, again uh, to have you uh, back on and to be talking to you again Uh, you're you're an actor a writer uh, a, a child of two legendary actors. Uh, Mel Brooks and your late mother, Ann Bancroft. Uh, and yet you've become known in Washington as a thoughtful mind on strategy, innovation, and, and capabilities. Your, your dad was a, a, a proud uh, veteran of World War II, even though he's got hilarious uh, stories about it. It was somewhat less hilarious when he was in, in combat. Um, what is it that attracted you to national security?
1: I think uh, I grew up in unique circumstances that I am a Gen Xer with greatest generation parents. So unlike most of my Gen Xers, fellow Gen Xers who grew up hearing their baby boomer parents talk about the wicked acid they dropped, the free love that they had, uh, the awesome cars they drove. Uh, I grew up listening to stories of a generation that spent their childhood in the depression and their adolescence in World War II. So I grew up with a sense of profound gratitude for this amazing country, And always a sense of uh, responsibility to this country, because I've always believed that I had to give back in some way. And I had to start to think seriously about what I could do in whatever small capacity uh, to provide for my child in this country that shelters and protects us.
0: Um, I, I I think uh, it's it's fascinating because uh, my uh, I, I think our uh, dads uh, are of uh, same age, same generation. My dad was uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but was uh, and you're fortunate enough to have your dad, and we're all fortunate enough to have your dad with us. Uh, but was a World War II veteran from uh, having served in the Soviet Army. And that sense of gratitude coming to the United States. My dad was an immigrant. Uh, you know, certainly attracted me, uh, and and had a very very similar mindset and a similar childhood, right? Because uh, we're roughly the same age, uh, mid fifties, uh, whereas our parents were older uh, and and of of that uh, greatest generation. Um, anybody who's familiar with your work recognizes that strategy is what. It's at what's at the heart of these books, strategy and resilience. I, I would say, um, what are the elements of strategy? Are you trying to explore in your work, and and why why is strategy something that you find so fascinating?
1: Well, I think I find strategy so fascinating because America is so bad at it. Uh, I think that we are we are a strange nation because I think we are the world's first isolationist, reluctant. Superpower you know every other civilization that has had greatness either thrust upon it or they took it but every every civilization that finds itself in the position of great power status usually wanted it and embraced it. Uh, the United States is very different. We kind of fell ass backwards into superpower status and we've never really wanted it and We've also come to it with a very strange idea, which is ideals. Every other great power that's come before us never had a notion of of making a better world. It was very material. We want resources, we want land, we want to plant our flag, we want to convert people to our religion, we want to take someone else's gold. And yet in 1917, we stepped onto the world stage with this notion of making the world safe for democracy. Uh, a better tomorrow. And I think that that's something worth striving for. And so that's what has always fascinated me about this. Does it always work? No, obviously. But America is about fighting the good fight at home and abroad. And that's something that I think should always, always be a rallying cry for anyone who believes in a better tomorrow.
0: Um, The uh, evangelist nature of the United States is what some nations find uh, overbearing, right? And exposes us sometimes to criticism. Here you go, uh, proselytizing about uh, democracy and freedom, and yet, uh, you know, you're not good at it uh, at home. Uh, The United States has always been able to say, well, yes, we are a work in progress. We acknowledge our flaws as a country. We work hard to try to remedy them. Um, What are ways... um, Max, that at this very consequential time in history, that the United States, despite its reluctance, can actually get good at strategy, right? Because we're up against nations that are playing their hands remarkably well, whether that's China or whether that's Putin, right? I mean, every other month, people are saying, oh, you know, um, you know Russia, Russia is democratically doomed. Well, guess what? It's still a pretty big country backed by a lot of natural resources. And, and these two adversaries of ours are actually employing strategy. Um, how do we get better at strategy from your standpoint?
1: I think that throughout history, countries that have played to their strategic strengths always come out on top. If you're an island, you, you play to sea power. If you're a land power, you play to the army. Well, America is an ideological power. And that's, that is our greatest strength, is our ideals, is that we are this mongrel hodgepodge nation that have all agreed to live together through our ideals. And I think that is our greatest strength. And I think that should dictate who are our friends, who are our enemies, who are friends of convenience, who are frenemies. Uh, but it all has to come through our values, because that is what rallies our people in the end. That's our greatest strength. That's what gets Americans traditionally to leave their homes, their families, their lives, and go overseas to risk everything because they believe in something bigger than themselves. Uh, So I believe that's gotta be the engine, but we also have to have a rudder. And I think that's where we get into trouble is sometimes when we have the engine without the rudder, we crash hard. And so we have to be passionate but we have to be passionate with common sense and with a clear vision of what we're trying to do, what is the goal in front of us, what is manageable, and what is a no-win situation.
0: Our, the criticism, and certainly in the wake of Iraq and Afghanistan, as you know, is that we let uh, passion, fear, uh, and hubris get the best of us and and try to do Right, I mean, I was talking to a British friend of mine uh, when I was in California and we were covering the Reagan Forum, uh, ran into a, a very good British friend of mine who's in national security and is a, is a you know, cutting edge mine. And he reminded us that the Brits uh, now are 0-3 in Afghanistan, uh, right? What, what, are, what, what are the lessons that you derive from those two wars that consumed so many resources, so many lives? um what are the lessons
1: well i think that you know we've been talking about america's greatest strengths but i think we also need to talk about some of our greatest weaknesses one of our greatest weaknesses is we are not good listeners we're good we're good talkers but we don't know how to listen that comes from our isolationism is we don't care about the rest of the world we don't care about other people's cultures we don't care enough to study them to listen uh it's shocking, I mean, we, we are almost, when it comes to Iraq and Afghanistan, we are almost the Martians in uh, War of the Worlds, where we had all this military might, and we didn't even understand there were germs in the air. We, uh, the Martians had not taken the time to study us. And I think that's us, uh, because- That's we, a very
0: good analogy, by the way.
1: You know, you, you see these profound, profound missed opportunities. And that, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that also plays to another one of our great flaws, we don't seem to care about history. We don't even care about our own successes. We don't even learn from our, our past wins. We seem to always be uh, playing improv theater when there literally is a script right in front of us. Uh, when you look at Iraq, you look at, how we disbanded the army we disbanded the bath party we disbanded all these institutions when our winning playbook in germany and japan was leaving these institutions intact and either just changing their names and getting rid of the top people or in some cases where the emperor keeping the top guy and letting him be a figurehead and you look at germany that we didn't denazify. We just got rid of the symbols, but we let all these ex-Nazis run the post office, run the police station, run the country. And we just said, listen, shut up about what you did during the war. And don't you dare teach your children what you did. And we gritted our teeth and we let all these horrible, evil ex-Nazis keep running post-war Germany. But you know what happened? Their kids grew up believing Hitler was evil. And now Germany is one of the most liberal countries in the world. We could have done that with Iraq. We could have said, "Shut up about the Ba'ath party and Saddam, and keep running the country." And twenty years from now, your children will make a better world. What do you, what are
0: um, so? What are some of the lessons, though, specifically we should be taking away from what happened? Uh, because I, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, we have a tendency of not studying our own history and our own successes. I, 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 you, you know, you, you've said that ideally. As we walk away from Iraq and Afghanistan, what is it that we have to bear in mind as we now ramp into or ramp up uh, or sharpen our focus on
1: China and Russia? Well, I think we have to relearn the hard-won lessons of engagement, And what does it mean to truly engage in other countries? Is it military force? Is it USAID? Is it civilian engagement? Uh, We need to study every individual country. Uh, Every individual country has their own story. We need to read that story. We need to understand that story in order to engage with them and speak their language in trying to get them to speak ours. Uh, When you're talking about Russia, we know that the Russians, as Churchill once said, uh, want the spoils of war without ever having to actually fight the war. We know that the Russians are casualty averse. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought all those zinc coffins home from Afghanistan at home after dark so people couldn't see them. That is a powerful lesson for what's happening now in Ukraine, which is very different than say dealing with Hamas, who only wants the conflict, whose only measure of their legitimacy is outrage and pain and coffins being paraded down the street. You cannot deal with those two people the same. When it comes to, let's say Russia versus China, the Russians have a profound ability for economic suffering and poverty and hardship. That's almost part of their national pride, as opposed to the Chinese, which have based their entire system on prosperity, economic prosperity. So prosperity is their Achilles heel, not so much in Russia. That's what I'm talking about is you cannot have some sort of bland Velveeta, one size fits all doctrine for the world. We need to listen and we need to specialize
0: what are, in your view, uh, the best examples of good strategy and the best examples of bad strategy? This is a question we ask everybody to try to get sort of to the to the nub of the issue. What what do you count on both sides of that ledger as worth emulating and worth avoiding?
1: Well, are we talking military or diplomatic or economic? What are we what are we talking about? Um, Any or all
0: of them. Right. I mean, okay. because, I, I, because I, I completely agree with you that there is this overwhelming tendency of looking at strategy and through the eyes of military strategy, and you have to look at it through the eyes of national strategy. Now, what are the broader national levers you can pull? What are the economic levers you can pull? The diplomatic levers you can pull? The informational levers. And we're going to get to that because I want your sense on, on that because you're a keen observer of sort of the information environment as well.
1: Well, I think we, we can look at some major wins uh, during the Cold War. You know, we I think some of our biggest wins was understanding, listening and learning and understanding that the communist bloc was not a bloc, that the Russians and the Chinese were communists, but they were still Russians and Chinese and they hated each other. And I think Nixon pulled uh, one of the greatest wins in world history, flipping China to our side instead of hiding behind this anti-communist ideology that's saying, yes, we, be- we have a certain set of values. They have a certain set of values that are diametrically opposed to us. However, in the short-term victory of entering the Cold War, we must compromise our ideals in order to save them. That's the thing about ideals, is that you have to hold on to them, but you don't want to make them so rigid that they snap. I think that was a huge victory. The same with Tito in Yugoslavia. He was our communist and he was a foil against the Soviet bloc because we were willing to put our differences aside. Uh, I think World War II, Winston Churchill, the most de- the most dedicated anti-communist in history, once said when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, if Hitler invaded hell, he would ally with the devil. So these are wins of strategy. But then you look at these profound losses. Fidel Castro, who initially came to us, who could have been our communist, uh, we, we turned on him. We said, no, 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 you nationalized our casinos, whatever, you're the enemy. And sure enough, he went right over to the Soviet Union and we almost had World War III in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Likewise, Ho Chi Minh, who wanted to be our friend, who based his, his declaration of independence on ours. who killed the Japanese hoping to curry favor with us, who could have been our communist. He could have been our Tito. And we cocked that up and a lot of Americans died. So I think we have wins. I think we have losses. I think we have the potential to always be winners. If we listen and we learn.
0: You highlighted, um, a very nuanced point that the united states always in its mind wants to be doing the right thing right i mean the administration is looking at a new arms export policy for example that will put human rights in the center and yet we have this duality right this this sort of reluctance sometimes to have them be our communist for example right what's the right balance to be striking as we go forward in What is, um, you know, I mean, I I think people have this tendency of thinking that this competition between the United States and China is new, and it's not. We're waking up to it, whereas this has been something that the Chinese have been prosecuting for some time, just like uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia has been building to this moment, right? It's not a new realization. He didn't suddenly become a pain in the butt. He has been a pain in the butt, and he is playing what may be a weak hand, but he's playing it very, very well. What's the right approach to take uh, at this moment with adversaries and particularly in China's case that are very different, Max, right? I mean, you noted in the Cold War, it was pretty clear the Russians were not part of the global economy, right? Um, Whereas China is integrally not just a part of the global economy, but a key economic trading partner uh, and market for the United States. What, What do we have to do and how do we do this, given that that good versus evil battle is actually playing out we have a tendency of saying never again and yet the chinese communist party has has been prosecuting what can only be characterized as a genocidal policy toward uighurs
1: yes and i think that that is something that this is the problem is that we need to remind ourselves of interconnectivity i think interconnectivity is the key because we are all connected And we used to understand that very well. We understood that in the Second World War. We understood that in the First World War. We understood during the Cold War that you might not be literally on the front lines. But if you live on this planet in times of conflict, every action that you do has consequence. And so we used to understand that. And we've completely lost it. I think the 1990s was a devastating decade for democracy, for human rights, and for the world in general. Because we believed that all the challenges were over and that everybody could go into their little corners and live their little lives the way they want, exactly as they want, and their actions would have no consequences. And that's not true. You talk about China and the genocide. Well, who's funding that? We are. We're funding this. Because we don't care where our iPhones and our sneakers are made. Uh, We don't care that our our biggest corporations are the engines of genocide in China. We used to understand that. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, we were always wondering in high school about what we were wearing or what we were doing is made in South Africa. And how are we funding apartheid? Uh, We need to get back to that. And we need, we need to hold our corporations accountable. And we also need to educate our consumers. That is the, the beauty of capitalism. In capitalism, the consumer has power. And I love that young people are starting to wake up to that and starting to realize, oh, wait, I call myself a social justice warrior and I'm shrieking about uh crime, supposed war crimes in the West Bank, in Gaza, but I'm doing it on an iPhone made with Muslim slave labor. So I think education about the interconnectivity helps to energize the voter, and as important, if not more important, the consumer.
0: You know, I I just want to briefly uh, bring in uh, the notion that you mentioned that you know we Americans are pretty much from everywhere. I mean, even Native Americans uh, have an origin story that's uh, that's not from uh, necessarily this this great land. For those people who don't know, your your dad's name is Melvin Kaminsky, and he was born in Brooklyn, but he was uh, born of immigrant uh, parents, right, Uh, from uh, uh, Danzig. Uh, and, and, and from, uh, Ukraine eventually, um, you know, there has been a lot of very anti, uh, rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, what do you find so dangerous about that?
1: I think it's dangerous on many levels. I mean, I think it was always dangerous because, uh, I think one of the, one of the problems we've had certainly since. I think the baby boomer generation is a sense of entitlement. This idea that everything this country gives you, not just it's uh, the material wealth, the prosperity, but also the freedoms. Uh, We've been taking them for granted for three generations. Now, my father's generation, the reason they were so fiercely patriotic was because if they weren't, their immigrant parents would smack them in the back of the head and say, you don't know how lucky you are to be here. I think this country needs immigrants because immigrants are our conscience. The outsider, the notion of the outsider is what reminds us of the good fight. Even in World War I, W.E.B. Du Bois said, if this is our country, this is our war. Uh, We need those who have suffered uh, to remind us why we are suffering and why we are fighting. It's this notion of Americanness that gave us the Harlem Hellfighters in World War I. And the Tuskegee Airmen, and the Nisei 442nd, and the Native American code talkers in both world wars, uh, groups who should have fought on the other side, but believed in the American ideal so much that they were willing to give their lives for it. We need immigrants. Now, I always joke about this, and 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 I'm only I'm only half serious, but when it comes to taking in Afghans. Uh, I think we should go farther than taking them in. Maybe we should have an exchange. I would totally be willing to, for every Afghan we bring in, I would totally be willing to kick out some entitled American who doesn't believe in paying taxes, doesn't believe in voting, hates this country. Uh, I think all everyone who was in the January 6th protest who stormed the Capitol, I would more than happily trade every single one of them for Afghan refugees. Because... If you're willing to turn on this country, then you should go. I think when I grew up, there was a phrase, uh, and as a liberal, I used to hear conservatives say this, love it or leave it. Well, I believe in that. I believe love this country or leave it. And when I say love it, I don't believe in following blindly. That's the great thing about this country. Loving this country means wanting to reform it, and change it, make it grow, make it better. Uh, But if you're not willing to do any of that, if you believe this country is irredeemable, uh, and if you just want to burn it down, then get the hell out and make room for somebody who's willing to help build it up.
0: You know, that's that's a very powerful uh, image you've you've invoked. And I want to try to get to domestic extremism uh, in a minute. But I would also put Jewish Americans uh, who fought against Nazi Germany, uh, proudly displaying the Star of David on the on the back of their jackets. Right. Um, and, and knowing what the risks were uh, doing it, especially in the latter part of the war, when it became a little more clear. Um, the, the, the circumstance uh, at, at the time that, uh, that Jews uh, in Europe were suffering under. You know, you, you raised uh, the January six uh, protests and in as much as China and Russia are threats, neither one of them really care about the existential future of the United States, right? I mean, ultimately they want to have a freer hand and not have the United States impede them ultimately. Um, whereas what we saw on January six is, much of it was propelled by, by misinformation and disinformation. And then you begin to recognize that a disturbingly large portion of the population is either mis- or disinformed, to the point where it starts to create a rather existential problem for the, for the country. How, how in all seriousness do we have to deal with this? Because I know that this is something that you've spoken a lot about and you've thought a lot about. Ultimately, right, if you believe in that idea of redemption, uh, and there was this sense that the Biden administration was going to play it much more in the middle, not as far to the left. Unfortunately, by moving to the left, the administration has seeded sort of center ground, and that center has moved back toward Republican candidates, right? What's, what's the way to correct this before the damage done to the country is potentially irreparable?
1: Well, I think that, that we, are, we are in a lot of trouble. We are, we are in a deep crisis in this country. Uh, I think a lot of it is radicalization on social media. I think social media companies need to be held accountable. I'm, I'm so buoyed by what I'm seeing now that we are finally getting to one of the dark corners of our, of our domestic disturbance, which is social media. They are radicalization is part of their business model it's part of the addiction, what keeps them coming back. And it's great to finally hear that because now it's at least out in the open. Now we can combat them. So we've got those big fights, but then it comes down to literally people, each and every one of us speaking out, because I think one of the biggest problems is uh, people who know better, They're they're the true perpetrators. I'm not talking about the people who are radicalized and and really believe this stuff. I'm talking about the people who know better and are either letting it happen or are fueling it uh, because it's either useful to them or they just don't want the fight. And I think it is the sacred duty of every American citizen that if you know the truth about something, you must speak up, even if it means risking your career, uh, risking financial gain, popularity, I think that we must all be willing to sacrifice for the greater good. And that sacrifice now means for a lot of people speaking the truth. I mean, you. I never thought I would agree with this uh, guy Crenshaw, but when he said that some of the people in his party, in the Republican party are performance artists, I think that's incredibly brave to say because it's true. Likewise, there are performance artists in my side, in the Democratic Party. Now, I do think the Democrats are trying to fight the good fight. And I think the Republican Party has gone completely over uh, to the radicals. There is no more Colin Powell. There's now no more Bob Dole. There's no more George H.W. Bush or John McCain. I think that the guardians who held back that populist tide are all gone. And I, I'm hoping that at least on that side, there's a new crop somewhere that's willing to fight the good fight. On the left, on my side, uh, I combat these people all the time. If I see bull crap, I call it out. If I see ideology over country, I call it out because rigid ideology can also be a problem. You know, like you said about the Biden administration moving too far to the left. I think that their heart's in the right place I think something like equity is great. There are people who've been left behind, particularly by globalization. It's torn the heart out of this country. We need equity. We need to bring people up so they can compete. Because if you have equality without equity, if you just open the doors, people are too far away from the doors to walk through. But you can't make it about race. Because there's plenty of poor white people in this country. And if you scream about white privilege, to millions of Americans that have lost their homes, their jobs, and uh, their lives have been filled up with opioid addiction and outsourcing, and you tell them they're privileged. Well, best case scenario, they're gonna vote for the other side. Worst case scenario, they're gonna become radicalized. So I believe that there is middle ground for everybody. And it doesn't matter what your race or your background or what your ancestors did to whomever's ancestors matter. I believe that Everyone should be raised up together.
0: Um, I, I, I think you're touching on a point that I think Bill Maher has uh, achieved uh, political philosopher uh, status in, in making some of these cases right. He does on a show. I know that you uh, participate in those conversations as well. But, you know, it's not a, you know, the, the nation has made mistakes. Leaders of the nation have made mistakes. Everybody is someone of their times. Nobody is perfect, right, which becomes a challenge on the left side of the argument where you're renaming schools and, you know, stripping Abraham Lincoln's name off of schools, um, you know, ultimately is not that constructive, right? I mean, that's part of the point that you're making as well.
1: Yes, well, and, and I also think that, that we also need to get to one of the big roots of the problems because so much of this radicalization has come from the fact, like I said before, that globalization has torn us apart, And globalization in the 90s was just uh, Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics with a neoliberal coat of paint on it. And trickle-down economics does not work. It does not work in a global society. If you strip away all the tax cuts, the money for the rich doesn't go down, doesn't trickle down to the poor, it goes sideways. It goes to other countries where you can open up sweatshops. And we've seen that. And I think in order to diffuse part of this radicalization, Vago, We need to have a very large national fundamental conversation on the relationship between the marketplace and the state. The state exists to provide, and I'm gonna use a term that's been overused and abused, a safe space for people to grow their business, right? That's what the state does. The state creates the safe space for the marketplace. The marketplace then gives a piece of itself to fund the state. And if you have a king, that's not fair. Or if you have a theocracy, that's not fair. Or, but in America, it is fair because by giving back a little piece of what you make in the marketplace to the state, you fund the roads and bridges and cops and schools that not only keep you safe, but also train your workforce. And I think that's critical. And we haven't been doing that. I think that we've been enriching this very top and they're not giving back to the people who have enriched them. You know, I don't believe in wealth caps. I believe capitalism is wonderful and it's the only way forward. I want Jeff Bezos to keep making money. I want him to get richer and richer. I want him to be a trillionaire. However, I do want him to understand because I understand that his trucks drive on roads that I paid for. And if his trucks break down, uh, that the cops that will rescue him, I pay for that. I pay for the cops that keep his truck safe because this ain't the old West where he has to have two Amazon drivers, one driving the other one riding shotgun. I've made it safe for him. And by the way, his drivers took their driving test at the DMV that I paid for. The gasoline in his trucks are kept at a reasonable price by the Carter Doctrine, backed up by the U.S. military that I pay for. I pay for the infrastructure and the safe space that allows Jeff Bezos to grow his business. And that's great. But then Jeff Bezos needs to do his part and pay his fair share of taxes to keep that infrastructure running. So then we all benefit. And this is the problem. This is still 1990s business where people say, Oh, well, I did it all myself. I did it all myself. No, you didn't. I helped you. Now you need to help me. And if you don't agree with that, by all means, move your business to Somalia, where you don't have to worry about government intervention.
0: Um, I, I I think that's a uh, that's an interesting point. And you could put Elon Musk in that as well. Right. Musk complaining about subsidies absent which his business would not have grown. Right. I mean, he would not have been able to create an electric car company if it wasn't for the seventy five hundred dollar rebate that his cars were getting uh, to, to make it uh, attractive and obviously other uh, sorts of uh, uh, national investment. Let me let me uh, take uh, take you to two other uh, questions that I want to get your 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 take on. Um, In World War Z, a virus spreads unchecked uh, around the world, turning people into zombies. Uh, Governments have trouble acting in concert, so each acts on their own uh, with uh, devastating consequences. Uh, It mirrors astonishingly, Max, uh, what happened in the COVID pandemic. When when this started, uh, and we were discussing this on the show, that if we get this right, we'll be better prepared as a nation for the next uh, crisis. And if we can bring countries together uh, that'll make us stronger in the event of, for example, confrontation with 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 China. For example, from your standpoint, uh, and now we're looking at Omicron and what's happening. At, countries are doing their own thing again, right? What what did we get right, uh, and more importantly, what did we get wrong in the course of COVID, and and what are the lessons we need to learn not just before the next pandemic, but actually before you know, God forbid, uh, the next war.
1: Well, this, this has been the problem of America's a hatred of its own history, not learning from its own successes, as well as its failures. You know, in 1945, we, we established a new world order. And it had a very simple message. What affects one of us affects all of us. The reason that we set up all these international organizations was the fundamental understanding that we were all trapped together on this little teeny planet. And the shock waves would roll around this planet uh, at a moment's notice. And we had to be out there and help each other. And it wasn't just out of some uh, some pie in the sky morality. It was self-interest. And we forgot that. We somehow along the line, as generations got richer and more spoiled and more ignorant, believed that these international organizations were an impediment and we should get rid of them. It was shocking to me during the early days of this pandemic that I was hearing that we were going to withdraw from the World Health Organization. That is insane. That would literally be like pulling out of the grand alliance in World War II and saying, ah, we're going to, we're going it alone. We're not even gonna do it, whatever. In fact, we're gonna fight Germany and Japan one state at a time. Let's see how Alabama does, and then California, and then Arkansas. Uh, I believe what we got wrong in COVID, what we are continuing to get wrong, is not seeing it as a global problem. These variants are starting overseas. And if we don't fight them there, we're going to fight them here. And I, I don't understand how we could use this, this philosophy, about terrorism, remember terrorism, if we don't fight them over there, we're gonna fight them over here. Same thing with the domino theory with communism, we don't fight them over there, communism is gonna come here. Uh, And yet when it comes to something that is so clear and real, like a pandemic, if we don't fight them over here, over there, they will come here. Uh, We've had wins like this in the past. We sent the U.S. Army into West Africa for Ebola. Why couldn't we have done this with COVID? And I'm not saying to send in the US Army. I'm saying that we have uh, the tools at our disposal to stamp out COVID all over the world. Because the longer we let it fester, the more chance there is of coming up with a, a new variant that's going to blow through everything and put us right back to square one.
0: From this uh, approach of sort of bringing the world together, right? I mean, the last administration was unable to do that. This administration is doing better, but in the eyes of, of some, not as good as we could be doing. Um, is, is that the, the, the notion of bringing people together? Is that the only way you think to deter China? Because I think we have this tendency, as we saw in the, in the Xi-Biden meeting, right? I mean, at first it was a summit, then it was just a meeting. The, the Chinese have a tendency of prosecuting their own strategy for decades, right? And then I think they realized they were running too hot. And one of the things they know is that once we start talking about cooperation, the Americans will fall for it, right? We like dialogue to deescalate a situation, even though it doesn't change the vector very much. What's What's the right approach against an authoritarian China at a time when authoritarianism is actually alarmingly on the rise everywhere, uh, whether in the, and and some would say even in the United States or in the UK, United Kingdom, right? Yeah. Sort of the the yeah. the grandfather of all modern democracies or the father of all modern democracies.
1: I I think we need to get a handle on our own greed. I feel that that is I feel that our greatest our greatest asset, which is capitalism, can also be our greatest enemy if it is left unchecked and if the if capitalism starts dictating our policy instead of the other way around. Like I said before. Uh, China's rise is all because of us, and we've been willing to look the other way. I've always said, if the Soviets had made blue jeans instead of just coveted them, we would have looked the other way with Chernobyl. Uh, we have to get a handle on our own greed. We have to get a handle on our own corporations. And I think we have to reset our relationship with China. And I think that has to go back. We have to roll the clock back to the 1990s. And if that means saying to all our corporations Apple, Disney, Nike, all of them, I'd say, "Listen, uh, we're starting again. We're sorry. We thought we thought that if we opened up China, we went in, we invested, we thought that they would that would bring them over to our side and they would liberalize. Okay, That was a great place to start. Our heart was in the right place. It didn't work. Where do we go from here? We start again. So listen, corporate America, we are going to give you all the tax breaks and incentives to move back here from China. And we will tax the living daylights out of you if you stay there, because we will not, not allow you to be the engine of authoritarianism. And I'm sorry, That's going to create a lot of problems for your investors and shareholders, and you're gonna attack us and you're gonna try to primary us, but we cannot continue to arm them. I think that that's the only way to go is to reset our trade policies from square one, admit our failure, okay? Because one of the great things about America is we are so good at reinventing ourselves. We are not locked in historical narrative. We're very good at saying, okay, We tried something, didn't work, we start again. And only a country where a former president who could have been a slave of its first president has the flexibility to do that.
0: Well, let me ask you though about communication with the American public, right? Um, I'm, I'm one of the people who, when I'm in a store, look at where a product's made. I've always been like that. Uh, That's a little bit of an outgrowth of my dad as well. And so we would buy Ticonderoga pencils for our kids because they were made in America, right? It would cost a little bit more, but it was like a dollar or $2 more. Um, If I go uh, to the hardware store, I try to buy the American clamp, right? And that American clamp might cost $4 or $5. Uh, and the, the Chinese one will cost a dollar. Guess what? After a while, there are no American clamps left. At least that that was the case. I'm affluent, so I can afford to do that. I understand some people don't you know just want to save money. Ultimately, Americans have funded this as well, Max, because you know they want to buy a hundred pencils for a dollar, not twenty pencils for a dollar, right? do we need to be having a different type of, right? Do do leaders need to be having different conversations with the American people about what's at stake? Um,
1: I, I think that, yes. And I think that that's critical. I think for too long, I remember there was, a, there was a criticism of Obama when he went to China and didn't criticize their human rights, but Bill Clinton did. But it was rightly pointed out that when Bill Clinton went to China, we traded more with Portugal than we did with China. Uh, I do think that, we need to have a serious conversation with the American people. I think that our social media companies need to be held accountable. That's another thing that needs to be reset. We thought in the 1990s, this brand new thing called the internet could be unregulated uh, because there were no more threats. What could possibly go wrong? So for the first time, we had a brand new source of power without any source of control. Uh, No FCC licenses or anything like that. Uh, I think that needs to be completely rethought. And I think that we need to educate the American people. And I think we need to also hold misinformation accountable and purveyors of misinformation accountable. And there needs to be serious punishment. You know, uh, when I was a kid, it took a lot to be a journalist. It took a lot to get in front of a microphone. You had to earn that. And you had to hold yourself accountable and you could be busted. Careers could be ended if you fudged it. Uh, but now you see the social media companies talking about freedom of speech. That's not what they mean at all. They mean cheap speech. They could very, very easily regulate misinformation on their own platforms. They just don't want to pay for it because it would cost money and they don't want to invest. And that may mean a new business model. And that may mean that, oh, God forbid, we all have to pay for Facebook now. Uh but I do think that the 1990s was our most devastating decade, and I think it needs to be rethought. We went in a certain direction, unlimited uh, economic freedoms and deregulation, and we thought, great, great, one world. It's the end of history, right, Francis Fukuyama? Well, history's not done with us yet. Reset. All
0: right, and and the elimination. So you would put in that category the elimination of the fairness doctrine that put us on this worrying path.
1: Yes, I think I think the elimination of the fairness doctrine was huge. I think uh, we saw this in the 90s. We saw like Glass-Steagall. We saw all these important regulations that were put in place. These were fire codes. These were the things that kept us safe. These are seatbelt laws Uh, and they were dismantled. And I remember being at a congressional hearing Uh, because I knew someone, a family friend who was very high up in the financial world, testifying about how getting rid of these regulations would make things more efficient. It was all about efficiency. Uh, Well, now we see we were wrong. And that's okay. We can admit when we're wrong. That's the great thing about America. That's where our system is superior to the Chinese system. The Chinese system is only held up by the notion that it is perfect. If it is not perfect, then it must cease to exist because it has no mechanism for improvement. Our system is based on the idea that we want to become more perfect. We are imperfect. So we have many, many ways of admitting, okay, we're wrong. Let's fix it.
0: There is this sense now, as the United States is making this transition to great power competition after two decades of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations, to trying to develop the capabilities, the mindset, the, the innovation at speed and scale that's necessary to counter a China. Um, senior military officials have confided in me repeatedly about how big the challenge is, how difficult it is for them to get their own organizations to move more, more quickly. Uh, you were interacting with senior military leaders during the Iran, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan years. Where actually the military services moved with remarkable speed to make those cultural changes required. Um, what do you think is key to being able to more to for that fundamental culture change? Right, because there is this sense that unless we start moving faster, we start developing more capability more quickly. We're really going to be uh, sunk, uh, given how fast China is moving. Right. I don't know why everybody's so surprised. They said they're going to develop a fractional orbital bombardment system, and they did. So that doesn't seem to me to be um, that tectonic, right? I mean, they said th- they did what they said they were going to do. What do you think are the keys to being able to move move faster and smarter? Because to your point, Max, American history is full of examples of us being able to move fast.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think that uh, Americans historically have gotten sucker punched more than any other country in the world, but we are really great at recovering and adapting. So I don't wanna hear that Americans can't do this. Quite frankly, I don't think there's anything we can't do. However, I think we need to acknowledge uh, what are the forces arrayed against us? And that comes into the culture of organizations. I'm not talking about China. I'm talking about our own internal departments of no. And when I mean departments of no, I mean the department of fear. Oh my God, I could be embarrassed. I could lose my job. The department of greed. Hey, you you have a really good idea, but this bad idea is making my military industrial complex company a lot of money. So let's keep investing in this. Uh, the department of tribe you don't wear the same uniform I do, so therefore I'm not going to listen to you, or you don't have the same experiences I've had, so I'm not gonna listen to you. I think there is a whole culture of change. Now I've seen all of those be challenged in places like the Modern War Institute, where you have a whole generation of mid-grade officers who watched their friends get killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they moved heaven and earth to try and change things. So the energy is there, the will is there. Here's what's missing wholeness of nation, that's the problem. And this goes back to the worst war we ever fought. And it wasn't Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam, it was Desert Storm. In Desert Storm, we were going to deter future aggression by having a massive conventional conflict on 24-hour news. We were going to show any future aggressor out there that if you challenged America on the battlefield, we would atomize you. That's why we let in CNN. That's why we did everything we did. The problem is our enemies didn't take that lesson. The lesson they took from Desert Storm was if you're going to challenge America, don't do it on the battlefield. Find ways of going around their Maginot line. And so they have been developing asymmetric means, hybrid means, cyber, information, economics, weaving it all together in a cohesive doctrine along with proxy, along with even conventional forces. And they are a generation ahead of us. We are still, and I see this, unfortunately, I see the center of gravity now that Iraq and Afghanistan are over, I see the center of gravity starting to pull us back to refighting Desert Storm 2.0. And that is not where our enemies are. They're looking to get us off the world stage, hopefully without ever firing a shot. And I think we need to understand that the national security world that you're in, that sometimes I'm invited to hang out in, is only one piece of a much bigger puzzle that is the United States of America with all of its assets together. And I think we need the kind of big thinking to coordinate these assets the way we did in 1941 and then in 1946. Uh, because combined, we would be unstoppable and China wouldn't be able to stand against us anytime, place.
0: You're from an artistic family, uh, but you and your wife, uh, Michelle Colos, uh, are both involved in uh, military matters. She works uh, with veterans on theater projects, through the War Words uh, uh, series um, at the Atlantic Council. How how do both, you know, and and you two are involved in the, you know, you bring the arts to the military and, and, and vice versa, right? I mean, there are a lot of people in Hollywood who don't know a fraction of what you do, uh, right? I mean, it tends to be a very transparent support the troops without any of uh sort of the more thoughtful elements of it that hey there are some things we do right and there are some, some some things we do wrong and how to do better how do both of these communities benefit from this collaboration and why is this collaboration more broadly so important between well, the, arts think, and the military
1: i think engagement with the arts is critical because we are a democracy we are a country of the people the people the voters are the boss and if the people don't understand what's happening. They don't understand the big picture. How can they vote for the right leaders who can then give the military the right orders? I I think that this is the biggest problem is that we live now in a sheep and sheepdog society where you have the military who are doing everything they can and giving all, all the time to keep everyone else safe. And the people who are being kept safe have no idea what's happening. And that would be fine if we lived in an authoritarian country where the sheepdogs were in power. But the problem is we live in a democracy. And so the rest of us, regular schmucks like me, need to understand what's keeping me safe, what's keeping me alive? What does it really mean to support the troops? And I'm going, and I'm going to get profane because I've been feeling this way since 9/11. This bullshit culture of the yellow ribbon is what's getting our kids killed. At no point does America understand what it takes to keep these warriors, these kids who keep us safe, alive. Vago, I saw the worst commercial ever in the darkest days of the Iraq war, the absolute worst commercial ever. It was for Hummer. And you can't even find it on the internet because they tried to scrub it. And it shows some young 20 something dude. And he's in the checkout line and he's buying like, I don't know, kale, something like that, tofu. And he looks in the line and there's another guy and he's buying a rack of ribs and the guy feels really bad. And then we smash cut and he's driving a Hummer. And the tagline is restore your manhood. Well, if that's true, then the Iraq war sheep and sheepdog model of restoring your manhood means you drive a gas guzzling toy version of the vehicle where kids your age are being blown up overseas for the gasoline so you can put in your little toy to restore your manhood. That's the definition of manhood in the country we live in now. And compare that to my parents, where my father served, my mother recycled, My mother did everything possible to support the troops, gave up everything, every kind of shortage and sacrifice you can imagine. This is the first time we had wars where we even got a tax cut. And that has to change. The American people must, at the very minimum, barest minimum, understand what it means when the country goes to war. And if we're not going to bring back war bonds and a war tax and rationing and everything else to make the rest of us feel the pain of war, then we must at least understand why. That's where the storytellers come in. That is where I come in. That is where my wife comes in.
0: Your your dad uh, is is one of the greatest satirists in history, as far as I'm concerned. Springtime for Hitler in Germany, uh, or you know, but, you know whether it was in the uh, in the producers or in Blazing Saddles or a number of other movies, is is satire. Um, and yet now we're so afraid of offending anybody that it's actually affecting uh, learning. Uh, you know, uh, uh, classics are seen as uh, potentially problematic, right? It's going to upset somebody if, if, if they read it. How important is it for sometimes the reader to be upset if you're trying to teach a lesson, right? History is ugly. It's hard. It's brutal. Well,
1: I, I think that we need to, to reintroduce ourselves to one of the fundamental principles of living in a free and open society. If you're going to live in a country where you have the freedom to think, the freedom to express yourself, and then you're going to live with other people who are coming from maybe other cultures or other narratives, other uh, life stories, Where and they want to express themselves too. If we want to live in a truly diverse and free and open society, then the price of that is every now and then, you're going to get your feelings hurt. You're going to be offended. You're going to be, at the very least uncomfortable. That is the price that we pay for a diverse and free society. Now, other countries, they don't wanna pay that price. And they live in either culturally homogenous uh, societies or they live in authoritarian regimes where there is no freedom of expression. And nobody gets hurt, nobody gets offended, uh, nobody gets triggered and you know, good for them. But that's not what we've chosen. And so we all need to remember that, that uh, the freedom does not mean freedom from getting your feelings hurt. Uh, I think the spe- especially in the arts, uh, comedy, these are great tools for us to learn. I'm gonna butcher this joke, I'm so sorry, but a long time ago, before I was born, a comedian named Dick Gregory said, football is the only time in American society where a Black man can chase a white man and a whole stadium of white people get up and cheer. Uh, You laugh, but then you go home and you think, oh, wow, what's wrong with our country that that's the only time that's okay?" So we need these people. We need the George Carlin's. We need the Dave Chappelle's. We need the people who, in other times and other places, would have been forced to drink hemlock or would have ended up in a re-education camp. Uh, And if you don't like what you're hearing, you don't have to listen to it 24-7, but they must be allowed to speak.
0: And, and your point is, as long as it's reasoned speech, right? I mean, not to get Hobbesian about this, right? But as long as it's reasoned speech, that's fine, as opposed to, or, or you're saying that even if it's misinformed, right? Because there is a line there, right? Some some people are getting very upset with, right? I mean, what's what's that line then between reasoned what? speech and free speech and mis- and disinformation. Ah,
1: And I think that that's very critical because in our country we are always living in a world where technology is changing and modes of communication are changing and therefore the discussion on regulation must always be changing. That was the problem in the 1990s was every time you had a new method of communication, film or radio or television, there was always a nationwide dialogue on what what should be allowed with this new source of power. If you split the atom, you must have control rods. Uh, So therefore, uh, in the 1990s, we got rid of that. We said we can have the power without the control Uh, and look what's happening. And so I think we do need to have a very big and robust and very, very, very messy national conversation on what must be the regulations for free speech in a free society, because it can't be unlimited We already have those. You can't call for violence. You can't uh, call for the assassination of the president. You can't even joke about that. That's not okay. And no one says, well, that's not freedom of speech. Tough. There must be guidelines. There must be maturity. There must be rules. So what can you say? Is it okay for say a comedian to joke about uh, Ivermectin, but Should the rules that govern a comedian also apply to the chief executive of the United States of America, who said, just inject bleach? These are very thorny and complicated debates that we must have. And if we don't want to have these debates, and if we don't want to walk away from the solution feeling like we're a little bit compromised, uh, then we should have an authoritarian state where there is no debate. And, and some people or one person at the top just dictates all.
0: Max, thanks so very much for being so generous with your time. Absolutely fascinating conversation. And uh, I, you've got a, a seat on this program anytime uh, you want to take it. Would, would love to uh, get your uh, little more nuanced thoughts uh, on, on driving uh, culture change and as well as part of our continuing dialogue uh, about civil military relations, because uh, you're, you're absolutely right it it became so support the troops, let them board first. Uh, hey, let me buy you a drink without really understanding the nuance uh, and all of the other elements that go. So it became cheap uh, and and very sort of superficial uh, sort of support for the troops. Hey, let them keep dying over there. you know, we'll just heap benefits on them and and we won't worry about it as opposed to it being something deeper and and more nuanced and and would love to have you continuing in that conversation because, uh, as we saw in the Reagan uh, forum, you know, the, the military's popularity in American society, it's still strong, but it's not as strong as it was two years ago. Uh, part of that was last June. But we really want to dive a little bit deeper into some of these factors and would love to do that with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Baka.